Hey there, podcast friends. Welcome back. This is a bonus rebroadcast episode of the show featuring my recent guest appearance on the Adversity Advantage podcast with host Doug Bobst. Rest assured that we'll be back this Tuesday with episode 377 featuring Zuby. That one's called The Antidote to Wokeness, Cultural Marxism, Tyranny, and Social Division. A really interesting conversation with Mr. Zuby there. Uh, in this one, Doug interviews me about my extensive past in addiction and alcoholism and all things dysfunction. And more importantly, we talk about all of the different tools that I've discovered over the years to not only recover physically, but also mentally, emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually. So in this conversation with Doug, we delve into my past and some of the early trauma that led to a life of addiction and of course, the miraculous recovery that so ensued at 26 years of age. Uh, I'm just about 51 now on the eve of 25 years of sobriety. And where that gets interesting toward the end of the conversation is when we go into how psychedelics and plant medicines have been so supportive of my recovery, which of course is a massively controversial topic, but one that I can only speak to from my own subjective experience. So if you or someone you know has struggled with PTSD, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction, codependency, sex addiction, uh, gambling addiction, food addiction, any of the ways in which we cope with our pain, this might be useful to you. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I can't wait to get back to you on Tuesday with Zuby. Trauma is everything. It's everything. And I would go so far to say that from my perspective, any dysfunctional relationship, any destructive behavior, thought, emotional patterns, whether they be destructive to oneself or destructive to others, are all rooted in some unaddressed, unhealed trauma. Because when the brain gets traumatized and we build these neural pathways that create our character and the way we do or don't do things in our lives, there's no getting around that because your brain is wired based on those experiences and especially the ones that happen in the first seven or so years of your life when you're in this theta programmable brainwave state where you're taking in inputs from your surroundings, your environment, your interactions, and it's forming who you are. When that gets interrupted by trauma, whether it be acute and dramatic or subtle trauma, that shapes your entire life. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today on the show, we have Luke Story. And Luke is the host of the highly popular podcast, The Lifestylist Podcast. He is also a writer and a meditation and metaphysics teacher whose passion revolves around the topics of health, addiction, recovery, and spirituality. Today, Luke is a thought leader in the health and wellness space, but this wasn't always the case. His history involves not only healing and recovery, but also tremendous pain, trauma, and addiction. His crippling addictions to multiple drugs, including heroin and crack, led him to living in a transient apartment building in Los Angeles, self-medicating with alcohol to handle the opiate withdrawal. It was also here that he decided to ask for help and change his life. And even though this moment was 24 years ago and his life is dramatically different today, he still remembers those dark times vividly. Luke began using drugs when he was eight or nine years old as a way to escape from an unstable and abusive childhood. 
With hopes of being a famous rock star, Luke found himself in Hollywood in the drug-fueled music scene. His addictions and the progression of his self-hatred eventually caught up with him, leading him to his rock-bottom moment that I described earlier. One phone call led to Luke going to treatment and turning his life around. And his redemption story has been driven by health, wellness, spirituality, and courage. This, along with Luke's desire for self-discovery and his hunger for learning, has led him to where he is today. Our conversation today unpacks Luke's healing journey. We talk about why he used, how he made it out, and the things he has struggled with in his recovery. He opens up about his experience with plant medicine and why it has been so helpful for him despite the controversial status in the recovery community. So we get into all of that and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Luke Story to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Luke Story, man. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, it's interesting. I've been wanting to connect with you now for for a few years just because of your incredible story. Not only your incredible story, but how you've blended just your sense of your your passion for recovery with health and wellness and biohacking and spirituality and just kind of put it all together in this this inspirational wheel of life. But what I also value is you're just continuing to work on yourself and challenge the status quo. And you're very open about your own healing journey and in how you're always seeking out different ways to improve yourself. I think as you've looked back and even currently on different things you've struggled with, but I think where I'd like to start the conversation because maybe my audience isn't as familiar with, with your journey is, is what it's been about 24, 20, 24 years now, 24 years ago, your life was in shambles. You're addicted to heroin, addicted to drugs. You're in a, in a, in a hotel room in an apartment. I was in a transient apartment building behind the Chinese theater in Hollywood. It was kind of a, a flop house of sorts. Yeah. And you're kind of hiding out drinking, right? Yourself silly. You were yeah. going through withdrawal from, from opiates. And, uh, and I, I guess I gather that you probably had this sense that either your life was going to end soon, you were going to jail or you needed to go to rehab. So if you could walk the audience through like how you got to that point, and then how that transition occurred for you to really be motivated to change your life. You know, it's so crazy looking back on that time in my life. I would have been in my mid twenties Yeah, and I'm 50 now. It's so strange. Simultaneously, it's so close to my visceral awareness. Like I can put myself back there in a second and just remember it. But on the other hand, to the same degree, it's like it was someone else's life because my life now is so dramatically different and not that, well, now I drive a BMW and before I had no car and now I just bought a house and before I was homeless. Right. It's, it's not even so much about the externals being so different. It's that my complete experience of reality of other people, of myself, of all of my interactions with everything with which I interface is just so dramatically different that it's crazy. And I, interestingly enough, I don't talk a lot about those days because it's just, I don't know that it's that productive at this point. I think I've really over the years, it's been 24 years since I was really quite literally saved by the unseen hand. You could say from that, that life of self-destruction, but along the way, I've really, surrendered the story, right? The identification of myself is like, I'm a former addict or I did this or I did that. It's more like, where are we going now? Where are we going in the future? 
But that said, it is crazy <laughs> to talk about sometimes because it's not only so different on the way, as I said, the way that I feel and the way that I just live my life and, and just how happy I am most of the time, which is such a, one of the main just contrasted experiences, but even the outside is vastly different too. So to go back there, I started doing drugs when I was around eight or nine years old. And what's funny about that is when I look at a kid who's around that age, I can't imagine them doing the things that I was doing. I was just, I was just kind of a born rebel and I was so mischievous. And I think because I experienced quite a bit of trauma early in life, I never really was able to develop a true sense of self, like a healthy self-identity, a, a healthy ego, my own personality, and more than anything, I didn't develop any moral character because it was necessary for me to evade those painful experiences and to somehow manage psychologically. So from a very early age, I just was deeply committed to escapism because just being me in my body, in my thoughts, in my feelings was so dramatically uncomfortable. So I started doing drugs when I was really young, I think because I just needed to self-medicate and there wasn't mental health care in the picture. And I didn't have adult caregivers that had the capacity at that time to really provide for my needs emotionally and in other ways. God bless them, but that's just the fact. Right. And so... By the time I got to the end of the rope, so to speak, I'm living in Hollywood in this building that I've often referred to as Disgraceland, kind of a homage to Elvis's palatial estate in Tennessee, because it was just this, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like out of a movie. It's just crazy. Yeah. It was a, they had these little one room bachelor apartments. So you have no kitchen. That's what I had. You had a hot plate and a refrigerator and you wash your dishes in the bathroom sink. If you ever ate, which I did very little of. And then the fancy ones were a studio. So they had like a little kitchen, you know, but you had, uh, basically just kind of vagabonds and transients that would come in and out of Hollywood. And most of them were really bizarre people. And most of them were doing copious amounts of drugs. So where that childhood drinking and using kind of ended up was living in Hollywood, playing in a band or a number of bands. And, you know, with the idea that if I could just be a rock star, then I would be okay inside if I was just famous and rich and all those things that drive so many young people to Hollywood. And uh, my life had basically boiled down to, and you, you know what it's like to be physically addicted to opiates. It's not a choice whether or not you do it. If you don't procure your medicine every day, you're going to suffer very undesirable consequences to say the least. So it's like to stave off those waves of withdrawal and the depth of depression that come with those every day in the end was just about pulling together between eight and $20 so I could yeah. get a balloon of heroin. And if I couldn't get that, which sometimes I couldn't because I would Maybe I sleep all day and the dealers uh, in LA at that time, they would go, they weren't out at night. They're out in the daytime. That's right. when you went to cop. And so if I couldn't get that, then I would have to take a bunch of pills or something that would, you know, barbiturates, benzos, any kind of opiate pills, anything I could to just like calm myself down. And then I would kind of oscillate between doing enough opiates to 
knock myself out where I would just kind of nod out with cigarettes. I remember when I finally went to rehab and came back to move out of that apartment, there were, there were burn marks all around where the coffee table had been, you know, (laughs) it was just like, it was like a really beautiful design of just fully, you know, like two and a half inch burn marks that where I just dropped a cigarette out of my hand to smoke a lot. And so, you know, nodding out and then coming to enough to smoke some crack and then not enjoying that feeling. And then, you know, doing the rest of my heroin and it just went around and around and around, like up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And so that was like, you know, the sort of the drama. I mean, it's not really drama. It's actually a really boring way to live truthfully, but from an outsider's perspective, you know, my life really revolved around just getting drugs, doing drugs, finding a way to make money to go get more drugs. I mean, that was just everything. But more importantly, I think was what was happening inside, you know, the, the progression of self hatred Mm. and self loathing and yeah, I mean, it, I, it doesn't even need to be overstated. It's just, I felt so bad about who I was as a person. And I think that when any human being is continually, year after year, doing something that is in such direct opposition with your core instincts to survive, it has a certain moral degradation that comes with that that is hard to explain unless one's experienced that, you know, where you're just, it's just lower than low. It's beyond depression and an anxiety and just confusion. And I just had a mind that was so destructive. My thoughts were just perpetually negative. Mm. So my whole outlook, not only on myself with that self-loathing and hatred, but it was also expressed outwardly where I hated other people and was just consumed by fear, anxiety, kind of the precursor to fear, I like to call it, and just a rage inside because I think on a deep level, I knew that my life was supposed to mean more than that. that There was some shred of dignity buried way down underneath all of that trauma, self-inflicted trauma. It was just it just became unbearable and I wouldn't have stopped if the anesthesia that w- that I was self-administering was still effective because I knew it was dumb to be a drug addict. Right. I mean, I knew people that had gone to AA. I was aware that there's another way to live and I didn't want to be an addict. No one's proud, especially I mean, with heroin, there's kind of a mystique to it because you got Keith Richards was a junkie. I mean, there's some cool junkies, you know, but like there's no cool crackheads. (laughs) So that one in particular for me was very shaming. And it's just so it's just so degrading to be out on the streets in the middle of the night, being around just criminals and just very, very low energy people, people that were very hurt people, you know. So it's like the culmination of all that I was fine with if I still got the relief, but where it ended up for me, that was, I mean, you could put a Scarface pile of drugs in front of me. I would do all of it. And I still had that same gnawing gaping hole in my heart and in my being that sense of disconnection and incompleteness and that sense of lack and all of those negative emotions and thoughts could not be squelched anymore at all, no matter how much of anything I did. And so then you've got a situation where 
the consequences start to outweigh the benefits so profoundly that even though it was hard to imagine giving up the drugs because that was my best friend. I mean, that was my tether to all life itself, but the consequences were so drastically worse than anything I was getting out of it. Then it just became kind of somewhat of a simple equation that I could not wiggle out of. And so I like to use the analogy. It's like if you have a headache and you take aspirin, but the aspirin makes you nauseous, you're willing to do it as long as the headache's gone because the nausea is better than a headache. And I'm using right. a you know, yeah. simplistic example. But imagine you have a crushing migraine and you take a whole bottle of aspirin and your stomach's killing you and you still have the headache. I could do that for a few years because every once in a while the headache would go away right. for a moment, right? right? And so that's kind of where it ended up with me. And, you know, one part of the story that I actually didn't remember until a couple of years ago is that as you knew earlier, you were telling me the story you knew about me that I used to sell mushrooms and I sold drugs and mushrooms seemed safer to sell than selling Coke or meth or something. So I sold mushrooms and weed because it was like kind of a hippie thing. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't yeah. think of myself as a drug dealer per se, but uh, I took a, a hero's dose of mushrooms one night to just escape the feeling of being me. And I ended up having what would classically be determined a bad trip. And I just cried. I was drinking. I was with my buddy who was the drummer of my band. And, and, and I mean, God, I probably gave him a really bad trip, but I just started to see what a shambles my life was. And, and I started to just sense that something was about to go very wrong as if everything I just described isn't wrong. Right? right. That was like kind of tolerable, but I did sense, man, I'm getting too sloppy. I'm going to get arrested. I've been robbed out on the street buying crack and stuff. No one, you know, physically harmed me, but it was close. And if I didn't have the street smarts that I had, I probably would have ended up in a really bad situation on one occasion, kind of talked myself out of a, an attempted kidnapping and, you know, things like that were starting to happen. I, as I said, I was selling drugs and I was getting really sloppy about it. I was completely unemployable. So even if I thought, all right, I'm going to clean up my act and try and get it together. I couldn't even really be a successful drug dealer anymore. I, I wasn't able to return the messages on the answer machine, which we had back then. And I'd graduated from a pager, you know, to an answer machine. So it's just like in that unintended plant medicine journey, I was shown like, this has got to stop. And then a few months later, a lot more happened after that. But a few months later, yeah, I ended up in a, one of my drug buddies apartments out in, I think it was in Canoga Park. It's one of the, the, the world, what I say, like the, the San Fernando Valley where they make a lot of porn movies. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like a, this weird residential kind of like suburban wasteland. And it's like the porn capital of the world out there. That's not what I was doing. But incidentally, that's what it's kind of known for. But anyway, periodically, I would like pay one of my drug buddies in drugs or in money to just let me crash and sweat it out at their place. It's like the movie Train Spotting. If anyone's seen that, I would kind of have myself sequestered somewhere with no car and no ability to get out and score heroin. And I would, I would kick. And in this one last kick, I really thought it was going to be the last one. And I, I came out of it after just drinking and taking pills for a few days and just trying to inebriate myself as much as possible and get through the withdrawal symptoms. And I came out of it and very immediately just went back and got right back on heroin. And the times before when I'd done that, 
there'd been a gap. Maybe the first time I didn't do it again for a year. I just did all the other drugs and then it was six months. Then it was three months. Then it was a month. And this time it was a couple of days out. I'm like, I'm cured. And when that happened, I made a call to my mom and, and I said, man, this is the call you've been waiting for mom. And it was, and I just said, I, I can't do this. I need help. You know, and thank God, my mother, I'm so grateful for her. She had the wherewithal uh, to, you know, put together a rehab booking for me. And shortly thereafter, I was, you know, I was, I was in there voluntarily and I borrowed the money from her to do it. It took me years to pay it back actually. And yeah, and for all intents and purposes, I've been sober ever since 24 years later, you know, and there's so much more to the story, of course, that came after, but that was really, mm. I think the essence of that experience, you know, it's, it's not just about all the consequences that happen in your life and jobs and problems with the police and failed relationships and all that. It's to me, the bottom that one experiences, it's an inside job. It's something that happens within you where you're just at a breaking point and there's something within your spirit that just snaps and it just, this can't go on. This has to end. This is it. This is over. And I'm so fortunate and so grateful that I, I think I really pushed it to such an extreme at such a young age. I was 26 when, when this happened that I was just so resolute in my commitment to get sober and to stay sober. And I still have that same commitment today. I mean, the same level of reverence and respect for the gift that I was given that I just don't tempt fate. You know, I was actually talking to my fiance a couple of days ago and we, we walked by, we were over on Lake Austin and we walked by this beautiful little park on the lake. And she said something, she's like, man, back in the day, that would, that would be a great spot, spot to smoke weed. And yeah. I was like, I was like, that would be dope. <laughs> I was like, man, I'd, I would actually really like to go smoke some weed right there. And then I said to her, I said, I wonder what would happen. You know, I wonder if I could just smoke weed right now. Like I always wanted to, cause I always wanted to just be a weekend warrior. Right. And I just, it would just always cascade me into all the other stuff. Yeah. It really was my gateway drug. And you know, of course, within a millisecond, I'm like, I'm not going to find out because right. if it goes wrong, maybe I could, I don't even know. I, you know, honestly, I think it's possible that I might be able to smoke weed every once in a while and not end up, you know, back on the streets. But the 1% chance, which is probably really higher in truth, that I did end up back in that position where I literally cannot stop, even though everything in me is crying to, there's just nothing worth taking that gamble. It's the world's deadliest slot machine, and I'm not pulling that handle. And, you know, that's, that's my resolve to this day. So that was that. Was that part of the story. Well, and I, and I think what's super beautiful about your story is the impact that plant medicine had. I think back then too, like you had that quote unquote bad trip that kind of set this alarm off for you that you knew like something was about to go terribly wrong, right? You just kind of had this feeling. And then we were talking before we recorded about a few years ago, how plant medicine has changed your life. And and yeah, I feel very similarly to you where people were like, always will ask me, like, do you get sick of, of talking about your past? And like, yes and no. I mean, I think yes, in the same context that you just said that I've come so far and that was such a big part of who I was, not who I am. But I think part of why I continue to share it and why I think you're, you're probably very open to share too, is I think it's just, it helps people, right? It helps people believe in themselves because I think the, the, the crazy thing about a transformation is when you feel like you have someone else's memories inside of you, which is kind of like, I feel like what you have. And, and there's people though, that I think that are just caught up in it, like where you were back at your lowest point or where I was, and they don't even believe they can get 
two steps ahead, let alone 3000 steps ahead, you know, to where you are now. And so that's why I think it's, it can be very powerful for people to hear like where you work. They see you now and you're like the epitome of health, right? Biohacking. You, know, you were telling me like the first thing you made sure you had at your new house was this ice bath. Right? Number one priority. <laughs> right. Yeah. Worry about the remodel later. We got to get this ice bath in here. Yeah. You're like, I don't need a bed. I just need an ice bath. I yeah. can sleep in that. So people probably think like there's no way, but I think if people can just understand, yeah, it's going to like recovery, like transformation. I don't care what kind of change you're trying to make. It's hard. It's not easy because I think people have this false narrative that if they're making a uh, change for the better, they're taking a step in the right direction, that all of a sudden life's going to get easy. And it doesn't because especially when you get into recovery, the masks have to come off and all the trauma, all the pain, all the insecurities, the fears, the anxiety that you were used, you were self-medicating with, with the drugs with, you're now faced to deal with head on. Oh yeah. You know? So, oh, yeah, man. so you've been doing a ton of work on yourself over the last couple decades now, as much as you're open to share, have you been able to pinpoint like a few things from what you know now that maybe led to this spiral of addiction? Like, Oh man, I mean, this is not only the core to my sustained sobriety. And I know to some people listening, they're like, wait, he just said you did plant medicine. Yeah. <laughs> we can get into that yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole can of worms there because the definition of one's sobriety is you know, up to them. Right. Um, so we could, we could talk about yeah. that. I, I didn't want to skip over that part because yeah. uh, it's, and it's a huge part of the story and also yeah. really relates to your question. But over all of these years, what has been the cornerstone of my sobriety is twofold. A really having the courage to go look at those parts of my past, my life and my current being that, led me to feel so uncomfortable that I had to go to such drastic ends to block out those feelings and those thoughts. Like, what was it? What was really the root cause? And in finding the root cause, and I'll lay some of them out in my own subjective experience, but in the root cause, no matter what is found there, what micro or macro trauma or experience led one to feel so uncomfortable in their skin that they're willing to destroy their entire life just to yeah. feel better. Right. They feel so badly is that the thing I was searching for in that anesthesia was God mm. for however that looks. The, I like to call it sometimes, as I said earlier, the unseen hand. It's just, yeah. it's that thing, you know, right. it's the, the thing that makes the acorn become an oak tree. What's doing that, mm. you know? And that's kind of a, you know, somewhat meaningless example of the vastness of creation and consciousness. But in looking back at the early trauma, the only way I would have been able to find another coping mechanism would have been having some direct visceral relationship with a higher power mm. that could have helped me contextualize and heal those things especially things that happen as a kid and that love and intelligence that's inherent to the creator would have in an ideal situation likely come through the adults in my life that were there to right. raise me and, and, and care for me and, and all that. But in my family system, going back as far as the family records go, you have people who were born into a family system on both sides where there was 
a lot of alcoholism, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And with each generation, you know, as, as far as I can go back again in, in the family history on both yeah. sides, that trauma was never healed by anyone that I'm aware of in the whole family. So it just stacks up. Yeah. And so you have, you know, the story family on my dad's side, maybe four generations ago, you know, uncle Fred molested his niece, Mary, and then Mary became an alcoholic and had kids and she beat the hell out of them. I'm just using, yeah, I don't, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't remember the exact stories, but it's the model, right? Where hurt people hurt people. Mm. And those people hurt people right. and those people hurt people, not because they're bad people, because they've been harmed right. physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And so I see now, I mean, from my vantage point that as a soul, I very specifically chose the family system that I chose mm. when I incarnated here. And to some people that might be far out, you know, cause they yeah. don't, they don't understand reincarnation or don't buy into it and think this is their first time here. For me, I just could say that I know, I know this is not my first time here. And there's a number of different experiences that have led me to have that understanding. But because there were spiritual lessons and soul evolutionary experiences that I would and have been able to use as grist for the mill in my own growth and evolution, I opted into that family system right? and inherent to that family system were a lot of very damaging experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, for me, you know, divorced parents, yeah, parents that are having their own issues because of the experiences they had when they were kids. I mean, that whole thing just playing out and, and also just the proximity for me of, the availability of drugs just right. where i lived when i was a kid there was just there was drugs everywhere mm. you know i wasn't like i wasn't the only kid that was eight or nine years old starting to experiment with drugs i mean i had little buddies that were all stealing drugs from their parents and you know mm. the adults around and it was just it was just part of the culture in northern california where i lived in in the 70s and in the 80s and so you know, you take a traumatized kid. I was sexually abused. I started acting out immediately, committing crimes. I mean, I had the cops call to me for the first time when I was in first grade. Wow. You know, the police came to our house. I mean, I was lighting fires. I was committing arson. I was reading pornographic magazines. I was stealing. I was lying. I mean, this is five, six, seven years old, right? So it's a perfect storm for a kid that Mm. is having that type of experience and no way to really process trauma that was ongoing in some cases. And then you put a pile of drugs in front of that kid and a curious mischievous kid like me is going to try it. And I try it and I feel fucking amazing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember when I first started smoking weed when I was a kid, I was just like, uh, why didn't you guys tell me about this when I was three? You yeah. know, this is amazing. And you know, and I'm actually very grateful that, I had that coping mechanism as yeah. crazy as it sounds, because who knows what would have become with me. I mean, they're, my parents have both individually done a lot of work on themselves and we have great relationships now and they've gone through many of the same sorts of transitions and, and mechanisms of healing action that I have myself. And they've been incredibly inspiring to me. So it really did. It stopped with my generation, that cycle of family dysfunction, that family system. But in a sense, it stopped with my parents because they both in the middle of their lives, you know, right. got right and, and have doing, have 
individually done a lot of work. But when I was a kid and I was in this by myself, there was just no other way to cope, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I'm so grateful that I, I was able to find drugs and rock and roll music for me. was like really my first drug probably. And just, I would just be taken away, man. You know, I'd listen to Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and I mean, I would just listen to music and all my problems would go away. Add to that, like smoking some weed that I stole from, you know, <laughs> one of the adults around or something. And it was just like, I mean, it was heaven. And it made me be able to cope with going to school and trying to be a normal kid while, while holding this deep sense of shame and just being so confused by some of the things that had happened to me and the ways in which I was uh, victimized as a kid. I mean, there was just, I would have gone nuts. I would have ended up probably suicide or who knows what, or becoming a perpetrator of, of harm myself or who knows what might've happened. But that's, you know, for me, the, the, the deeper I get into this journey, which is now not, you know, I don't spend my time like, Oh, I got to keep looking at my <laughs> yeah, childhood yeah, trauma. Yeah. I'm just like, how happy can I be? How much can I live life? How much can I serve? You know, that's the thing when, when you get reduced to that, animal level survival as an addict there is nothing more important than you and getting yours and feeling the way you want to feel at the expense of whomever yeah right and and now in my life i don't sit around like oh i gotta heal my trauma and a lot of it's been healed i'm sure there's lifetimes of stuff that i'm not even aware of yet but i've gotten to the critical tipping point where i'm so fulfilled inside that i just have too much love, too much experience, too much wisdom. And, I'm, and I say that with as much humility as I can muster, but wisdom is earned and I've fucking earned a lot right. of it. Uh, a lot of it very painfully <laughs> through acting in ways that were unwise, right? And right, learning, right. oh, okay, that's the worst way to do this thing. Now let me find a better way. But to be where I am now is like, I'm overflowing with so much of that, that my life is just automated to contribution and my value system has become flipped to where my primary concern is what does the other person get out of this not that i don't like to get mine i want to succeed i want all the things like sure a person i'm not a saint by any stretch remotely but my whole juxtaposition in life now because of really having the ability and the help from so many guides along the way to get a lot of that garbage out of the way so the slate is clean and I'm not having to spend my time suppressing and repressing uh, painful past experiences or memories or traumas in my body, in my mind, in my spirit that I feel very clean inside and as a result there's like a, a heart opening and an ability for me to connect with people in a very healthily intimate way yeah but to your question to to, to round it out it's trauma is everything mm. it's everything and i would go so far to say that from my perspective any dysfunctional relationship any destructive behavior thought emotional patterns whether they be destructive to oneself or destructive to others are all rooted in some unaddressed unhealed trauma because when the brain gets traumatized and we build these neural pathways that create our character and the way we do or don't do things in our lives 
there's no getting around that because your brain is wired based on those experiences and especially the ones that happen in the first seven or so years of your life when you're in this theta programmable brainwave state where you're taking in inputs from your surroundings, your environment, your interactions, and it's forming who you are. When that gets interrupted by trauma, whether it be acute and dramatic or subtle trauma, like being the kid that's the middle kid that's ignored and right. doesn't get the attention or the approval or the affection they need, that shapes your entire life. And until each one of us is willing to take responsibility for that, you can buy all the cars you want, you know, have the best partner, the best job, the best career. You can even get sober right. and become a good person. Huh. And until you deal with that, man, life's not going to have the juice. It's not going to have the depth that I think we all inherently crave. Yeah. I want to dive into your, you've taken sobriety and your recovery to that next level and gotten really into health. And before I want to go back to something really briefly that you said about trauma and the way you grew up and this, this least layered trauma that your, your family kind of went through. And I don't know who says it, but you hear the saying that like genetics trauma kind of loads the gun with drugs and addiction. And then your environment pulls the trigger. Oh, that's good. I like right. That. Mm -hmm. Where you had that you were, it was like the perfect storm for you. It was waiting to happen, waiting to come because you wanted to fit in. You had all the trauma, you were molested, you know, all these things. And then you're introduced to pot. You're like, Phew. I can finally be at peace with myself. I can finally not have to worry about who I am or all the stuff that's gone on around me that probably hasn't sat well with who you were. Right. And then I think there's an interesting thing in my experience that happens with addiction where the pendulum starts like on the left side, say where you're doing drugs to fit in, to party, to be the cool kid. And then eventually you're doing it to deal with the shame of being an addict Yeah, yeah. and to numb the pain and be like, Oh my gosh, I just need to do it to get by and you already feel like crap about yourself. But I believe that like our external world is, is, is a reflection of how we feel about ourselves inside. So that, cause I, I mean, I've had to explain this to people who are like, well, how can they do that? How can they make these decisions? How can they hang around those people? How can they continue to do drugs? Like clearly they don't feel good about themselves. And so to them, to anybody, to you, whoever's in that position, those choices are just aligned with their level of consciousness in that moment of who they are as a person. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're not happy. And through a lot of deep work, a lot of understanding, a lot of awareness, a lot of getting, you know, falling down and getting back up, you start to unlearn these patterns. But I think the big thing that's helped you is not just getting sober, but getting healthy. And, and the reason I bring that up is there's plenty of people that get into recovery and they're just in recovery and that's fine. I don't judge people if that's where they're at. But I truly believe in order to thrive, in order to grow, you have to kind of change your identity and not be just completely drawn to saying you're going to be a drug addict for the rest of your life or having that mindset, which is kind of what, you know, I never went through AA or NA. And that's one of the things where I have a lot of people in this 12 step community, they're friends of mine. But one of the things that I haven't necessarily hundred percent agreed with is that you identify as an addict all the time for the rest of your life. Because to many people, that mindset can bring people down where you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm an addict. Does that mean that I can't do this or I can't do that? Is having success bad? Is making money bad? And they get, they get stuck there. But I think one of the things that, that really can benefit people is not just getting sober, but getting healthy, you know, losing weight, exercising, taking control of their nutrition, changing the people they hang out with, you know, quitting smoking cigarettes, cutting down on the sugary drinks and, and all that mm -hmm. stuff. 
what got you into health? Because it seems like growing up, you were, it was like the polar opposite of where you were going. Yeah. There's some, there's so much in there. I want to touch on one thing before the health thing, the first part of your dialogue there. And that is in referencing to oneself as I am an addict, I am an alcoholic. And that's something that throughout my recovery, I would examine, right? Because it's like, where your attention goes, your energy flows. So if I'm, it's like a negative affirmation, right? So from, from the outside perspective, want to go, God, why do you keep calling yourself an alcoholic? Like you haven't had a drink in 12 years or whatever. But I think the value in that, and I don't know that this is a value that has to remain through someone's life journey once they've sobered up. But I think the value in that for me, sitting in a room full of people and it comes around to me and I'm like, I'm Luke and I'm an alcoholic. Right. Within that is a humility. Yeah. Yeah. A humility that is so necessary to achieve not only initial but lasting sobriety where you realize, okay, in and of my own resources, this is where I've arrived in my life. My right. whole life I've done the best I could and the best I could do got me behind the gas station smoking <laughs> yeah. crack, yeah. you know, while people it's nine in the morning and yeah. I've been up all night doing it and people are walking over me on their way to work. Right. And I'm looking up at them going, you losers, you have a job. You know, that just the grandiosity, the maniacal egoism mm-hmm. of addiction and alcoholism. The only thing that's really going to trump that is one's own internal admission that like, all right. I blew it. I've been reduced to being an alcoholic, right? So there's that part of it. And then also the other immense value in that for me has been that it's not like, oh, I'm someone that had a drinking problem. Mm. To me, in my own manipulative uh, coercion-based mind, then that would tell me subconsciously, well, someday I can have a few beers watching the game on Sunday, or someday I can smoke some weed with my lady down by the river. I mean, what's the big deal, right? It's like a finite statement. I have become an alcoholic. So there's a couple, I mean, there's more to it, but just to touch on that, I think the distinction there could be just a little wordplay. I'm Luke and I have alcoholism and alcoholism by my definition is not something that is ever possible in the past tense right? because my own subjective experience, again, is not not putting this on other people, but I'm pretty damn sure, Doug, that right now, if you put a glass of vodka on the table and I drink it, I'm going to react much different than a person who never had a drinking problem. (laughs) Right. And I honestly have no goddamn idea what happens after that thing is in my bloodstream. I, I don't, I don't know. Right. But in the past, what would happen was I go, Hey, I'd shoot that down and go, you got any more of that? And if you don't have any more of that, I'm going to go find it. And then after that's gone, I'm going to be like, who's got the Coke Right. after that's gone. I'd be like, well, we should just smoke some Coke. After we do that, I'm going to be like, well, I'm a little anxious. Who's got the heroin? And there we go. And we're back in the thing. So I don't walk around calling myself an alcoholic or even necessarily a recovering alcoholic or recovered alcoholic. I just know within myself, in the absence of any label, I'm someone who very likely still to this day would have a very adverse reaction to the alcohol molecule. 
And therefore, I have no plans of putting it in my body. And that goes for a number of different substances that right. have proven themselves to me, beyond the shadow of a doubt, to be problematic, if not extremely dangerous, or even lethal. But wouldn't you say, so not to interrupt you, but wouldn't yeah. you say that a lot of that, I think, too, is just knowing yourself, like w developing that sense of awareness once you get into recovery to to understand, like the spectrum of addiction, I think is the only thing that I would say too, is that I think there's people who have the full blown genetic predisposition and the trauma and everything else. And then there's other people that just as a byproduct of their environment or current state used substances to self-medicate. And maybe, I mean, nobody should be using drugs or alcohol in excess anyway, right? It's not healthy for anyone. But I guess my point in all of this is maybe that person who just went through a bad spell for like six months after a breakup or after losing their job might not have to be classified as an addict the rest of their life. They just can acknowledge that they had a, an issue. They had a coping mechanism problem where they weren't uh, able to properly manage stress or anxiety. And if you could just change the way that they did that, then their life would be better and maybe they are no longer classified as a quote unquote addict. And, and I, I say a lot and I'm sure you might you probably would agree that, well, I don't think addiction necessarily is a choice. I do believe your choices have to change <laughs> in order to, to, to beat addiction. It wasn't a choice for me, man. <laughs> no, for sure. I, I wanted to stop. I mean, that's uh, the thing. Like, no, there was a few years there where I was like, F you like, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. how I live my life, bro. But yeah. you know, after looking myself in the mirror on, on many of those sleepless nights and, you know, just the degradating things mm -hmm. I did to myself and other people. I mean, I, I wanted to stop yeah. and trust me, it was not a choice because otherwise I would have made that choice, you know? But what I meant is like your choice, I think in response to that, the yeah. way you live your life for the choices you make on a daily basis have to change. So I guess, yeah, I want to, I want to get into that because I know that the, yeah. a big part of your story which is fascinating to me is your admiration for all things, health and wellness. Yeah. Like how did that come about? Dude, it's, it's funny because both my parents in the seventies took tons of vitamins. And I've asked my mom about this because when I was a little kid around the time that I went uh, through that period of abuse and things like that, um, yeah. my mom would always give me these huge handfuls of these big horse pills, these massive stacks of vitamins. Yeah. And it was part of my like dinner. And I, here's your vitamins. And I didn't like swallowing them. So I would, uh, we had a rug actually much like this and, and I would stash them under the <laughs> dining room rug and I'd be like, yeah, I took my vitamins. Cause as I said, I was already a little pathological liar. Yeah. And then when we moved out of that house, there was like all these like <laughs> eroded vitamins yeah. under the, you know, hundreds of dollars probably worth of vitamins in the day under there. But yeah, my mom, I asked her about it. She said, oh, I, you know, I would read all these books on being a good mom and, you know, having a healthy baby and a kid and back in the seventies, like it vitamins were known to be good for you. So thank you, mom. Probably helped me survive a lot of the abuse I did in my body. And then the right. same with my dad. My dad, way back in the day, I mean, he was maybe not so much 70s, but probably in the 80s, he got into supplements and wow. kind of alternative medicine and things like that because he had some health issues and he just would have a huge cabinet full of vitamins and he still does, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't, my mom maybe a little less so. But so like going to the health food store, that's where we shopped when I was a kid. You know, I wouldn't consider the things I ate then healthy now, granola and whatever. But, you know, we didn't have white bread. We didn't have 
you know, sugary cereals and white sugar, all that kind of stuff was not in my house. So there was an influence there. I think if America could just cut all that stuff out, we'd be much healthier. Oh my God. I mean, dude, I, I, every once in a while I go in a normie grocery store just to grab you know, I need some butter or something, yeah. right? So I go in a grocery store and I'm like, what? <laughs> People still eat. This is literally poison. Like every aisle, it's a, it's 90% corn just disguises other food. But I'm just like, oh my God, no wonder the hospitals are full of people, man. I feel so bad that it's just, yeah, it's, it's just normal to a lot of people to eat food that is actually not food. It's just literally poison. But anyway, to speed up kind of to where I got really serious about this because I knew about juicing and even organic food and things like that and taking your vitamins before I got really enraptured with addiction, right. I was the guy who would be up all night doing drugs and the next morning I'd go to 7-Eleven and get those vitamin packs or <laughs> I'd be you know, on my way to score heroin and I'd stop by the juice spot and get like a big carrot juice or whatever, celery juice, you know, stuff like that, bee pollen, wheat germ smoothies, all this kind of stuff back in the 90s and my friends would always make fun of me. They're like, dude, you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, you're a junkie, you smoke crack you drink yourself into oblivion every night and you're going to go take vitamins. I was like, watch, you know, I know I'm really harming myself. So I'm going to do everything I can to have a couple positive inputs. But then when I got sober, that's when it got really serious because I had this fantasy that if I put all the drugs and alcohol to the side, that I would feel amazing. I have tons of energy and I wouldn't have anxiety or depression or anger and I would just be happy. It only gets worse. And I do yoga and I was going to meditate and I had all these, you know, lofty aspirations about how great I was going to feel. And I felt like death when I got sober. So then I started getting into fasting, infrared saunas, colonics, you know, juicing, making my own kombucha, medicinal mushrooms. This is like in the late 90s. And I started to feel better. Became a vegetarian for many years, which ended up actually having a lot of negative consequences for me. So eventually I I got out of that. Yeah. Started eating, you know, quality pasture-raised meat and and eggs and grass-fed butter and ghee and things like that. But I was kind of into what they call biohacking now. I guess Dave Asprey says he coined that phrase. Maybe he did. It doesn't really matter. I've never really liked the term all that much because it just sounds like computery. And I think the body's a living, just a beautiful living conscious organism within itself. So to me kind of is a mechanistic point of view, but I do like the perspective of kind of how I look at it is becoming your own doctor, right? It's like epigenetics, uh, right? Like just yeah, exactly. To, yeah. So imagine, okay, imagine this, like you have a car and your car starts blowing a bunch of smoke out the back and you start hearing this clang, clang, clink when you drive around, you could take it to the mechanic and spend a bunch of time, energy and money to have them fix it. Or you could just learn how to work on your car and learn how to, you know, give your car what it needs in order for it to stay fully functional. So right. Again, you know, I just contradicted myself in minimizing the body to a mechanistic kind of machine. But in one sense, it is. It's a biochemical, electric, light body organism, and it has its own intelligence. And I started to learn that if you just simply stop giving your body the things that it doesn't want or need and start giving it the inputs that it does want to need, miraculously you can heal yourself of so many things and start to gain back your vitality. And so after, you know, the infrared saunas and all of that stuff, again, going way back to the nineties, then I got really into meditation and started doing Kundalini yoga, which not only includes a lot of really 
powerful movements and mantra and prayer and chanting and all this, but a lot of the Kundalini Yoga is involved in breath work. So I remember when breath work became a thing, I think it was like when I found Wim Hof a few years ago, I was like, this is just one of the things in Kundalini Yoga, <laughs> you know, there's 150 Wim Hof methods within right. the Kundalini Yoga tradition. But yeah, and then that led me into just being fascinated with PEMF, Rife machines. This is again, going back, you know, early 2000s when this stuff was super fringe, the Photon Genie, which is this photonic light, noble gases machines, it just really far out stuff that used to be just crazy new age hippies were into. And then, you know, thanks to Dave and people like that, some of the stuff started to get more mainstream attention and more validation from the scientific community. And then in 2016, I started my podcast, The Lifestylist, which is still going, by the way, shameless plug. And I started to interview some of these inventors and chemists and physicists, and biologists and other biohackers and health nuts and people who had healed themselves of Lyme and cancer and autoimmune and lupus and all the things. And I just, I think over the years have realized that a huge part of mental health is in physical health right? To your, sure. to your point, it's like, dude, you get sober and you're going to drink coffee and eat donuts, smoke cigarettes all day long. You think you're not going to have depression and anxiety. Right. The neurochemistry of, you know, the, con the consequential neurochemistry of that lifestyle is going to likely lead one back into having to do drugs because you're just not going to be happy to right. put it plainly. Yeah. So, you know, getting into things like sun gazing and breath work and grounding and ice baths and saunas and fitness, whatever that looks like, yeah. yoga, to me has been a huge part of the journey. And the flip side of that is one can be so obsessed, like in a kind of orthorexic way with everything you eat and all the supplements and all the practices that that can start to take precedence over just being a person and enjoying your life. So for me, it's kind of uh, finding a balance of doing all the things which I'm so passionate about when it comes to innovations in health and wellness. But also sometimes, man, I just, like yesterday, I stopped by um, CVS and got a score bar and just munched that thing down. It was delicious. Yeah. Probably like all GMO, whatever. <laughs> and I just, I don't care. I wanted a score bar. It was yeah. amazing. You know, so I'm like to a lot of people that know my, my work and stuff, I probably seem like an extremist, but I find a balance. It's taken time to where I live my life and I have fun and do my thing. But yeah, I take a lot of herbs and supplements and nootropics and all the biohacks. I mean, my house that's being renovated now that hopefully we can go see. Um, I mean, it's going to basically be like a holistic healing center, you know, yeah. for friends and family. And that brings me a lot of joy too, to be able to really not only hopefully uplift people in my life, in the heart space, but also to have someone come over and be like, man, I got something going on. You got anything for it? I'm like, yeah, I do. Yeah. Sit in front of the biocharger for 20 minutes and watch how different you feel, you know? So to me, it's novel and fun and, and also very useful. Well, I think the word passion and addiction, I think, can go hand in hand sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And I think what, what, what needs to happen, I, I don't think this is, this is could happen. This is kind of what needs to happen when people are switching like from having addictions or, or bad habits like that is they need to channel that energy into something else or that energy right. just sits there. Right. And I don't care if it's through journaling or pursuing other hobbies or whether it's through uh, meditation therapy, what it's, it, it's got to get out some way. And I feel like you've had this creative nature throughout your whole life. You were a musician, you know, you obviously 
were passionate about styling people. You became a fashion stylist shortly after you got sober. You have the podcast now, and now you're almost helping people style their health, if you will, through the people you interview, through your own content. And it's really admirable because now you're using a lot of the stuff that, that has helped you along the way and sharing your journey to invite people to kind of come along on the ride with you. Because I think what happens is so many people, they go through these dark moments in their life and they're like, man, what was me? And they have this immense amount around amount of shame around it. And what they don't realize is no matter how you want to look at it and no matter um, how cliche this sounds, all that stuff happens for us. There's no other way to look at it. If you ha- look at that situation and say, this all happened to me, then you're going to stay in that victim mindset and you're going to have all this shame around it. And you're going to stay there and see that point in your life as something that was, you know, ultimately just plain horrible. But if you can look at it and acknowledge it and say, you know, while I'm not proud of a lot of the stuff that I did, God, the universe, whatever was in some capacity, because now it's brought me on this deep healing journey that now I can use to help so many other people. Then I think it becomes, you get this proactive, optimistic mindset inside your head that says, wow, like. I don't regret any of this. And you and I were talking before we recorded about some of the dumb stuff we both did. And we were both like, you know, I don't regret any of it because it's brought me to where I am today. We have more compassion. We have more love for other people. We're able to, to share and, and hopefully, you know, shed light on some of the darkness that people are going through. So I guess my next question I want to transition to is I know you've done a lot of healing work on yourself, right? Through the years in relationships on yourself, through trauma, what have been like maybe like one or two of the, of the healthy, some unhealthy patterns that you've noticed about yourself in the last few years that you've had to do work on to help relearn into something to change for the better? It's a great question. You know, I think my experience is quite common. You have problems with drugs and alcohol so that's the loudest voice in the room and you're just on fire and you got to put the fire out, right? So you yeah. go to rehab, you go to a program, you do whatever. And you think like I thought that once I get drugs and alcohol out of my life, I'm going to be a great guy <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to make a bunch of money. Everyone's yeah. going to love me. I'm going to be successful in anything I do. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And there's a lot of transference of addiction that takes place. And that was certainly my case. So get sober. Now I'm, you know, I'm watching five movies in a row up all night, eating three pints of Haagen-Dazs, not even exaggerating, you know, drinking coffee all day long, watching porn, having way too much disconnected sex. And what else is there? Oh, spending money, racking up the credit cards, you know, getting high off of like buying stuff. And then the guilt because you just bought something you can't afford and now you've got debt. And I mean, just all of these other uh, sort of compulsive behaviors, you know, where you're just compelled to do something. And you're like, why did I do that? It's because my brain is wired to be compulsive. Now, I've taken drugs and alcohol off the table, but that's not going to help with the compulsion and the obsessive thinking and obsessive behavior around everything else. So, over the years, for me, it was like, okay, I got to look at the money piece. I got to look at the tobacco use. I got to look at the pornography. I got to look at my incapacity to have a true partnership with another human being, my fears of intimacy, my fears of having children, my fears of getting married, dysfunctional, mutually destructive romantic relationships, all of this stuff. So for me, man, it's just like, it's been a game of whack-a-mole, right? You quit drinking, you're like, oh God, I have toxic relationships. Oh God, I use sex in a way that's not healthy, all of these things. And so I feel like 
at this point, I mean, there's always more work to do, but I'm not doing any of that stuff. Right. You know what I mean? But I had to go to different programs and therapy and support groups for each of those categories in my life that I just could not fix, you know, and I'm not ashamed to admit, like I've had to seek help for all of that stuff, whether it's going on spiritual retreats, listening to literally thousands of hours of audiobooks and lectures by spiritual teachers and specialists in things like codependency, love avoidance, love addiction, sex addiction, all of the other nuanced problems that we human beings have as a result of trauma. Yeah. Really. And maybe some other things too. Maybe we're just wired for say connection and intimacy, but we never learned the tools of what that looks like. So all of that stuff has been in my repertoire of healing. And although each one of those like areas that, Oh God, now I got to look at this part has been brought about by pain and discomfort and failure, you know, say like relationships, just like, Oh my God, another breakup where two people are hurt and worse off than they were when you started kind of thing. They've all been very motivating because it's so easy to track. Wow. I used to have a relationship with pornography. Now I don't. Wow. I used to be totally incapable of a healthy, mutually beneficial relationship. Now I'm in such a divine, beautiful, fulfilling I mean, it's like my fiance and I, it's like, it's like a fairy tale. Like yeah. I, I can't even believe, I just look at her and I'm like, this is my life. I mean, this person is so incredible. And that's, you know, that's just the fruit of doing things the wrong way yeah. and being a dumbass and just being willing to go, all right, you know, there's gotta be a better way. What is it? And just being humbled by those painful experiences and feeling the regret of people that I've hurt that I didn't intend to hurt and all of that, you know, it's like, so there comes a certain point, And I think this is the point of life that I'm moving into now where it's not so much focus on what's broken. It's like sitting there drinking my coffee, looking at my dog or cat, my fiance and just going, wow, just be here. Mm. You don't need to keep fixing yourself. You don't need to keep healing. You don't need to keep delving into all these shadows. Like we're good until and unless something reveals itself as a pattern that's hey, that's wiggling its way back in. And there are sometimes, you know, I have a pattern, for example, sometimes where say I'll text my, my lady Allison and I'll text her and like she didn't text me back which is rare. And for a minute, I'll be like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. She, she doesn't love me anymore. She's going to leave. What'd I do? And then I get home and she gives me a huge hug and she was fine. She was in the shower. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's still, I see little crumbs of just fragments of patterns in my psyche that are there. And then it's more of just like, oop, let me clean that up and I'll share it with her. I said, wow, you know, that's really embarrassing. But for a second there, I was like, afraid you were mad. And she just laughs her ass off. What? What are you talking about? You know, I go, I know I'm crazy. It's okay, but I'm able to move through them, but I'm not pulling over my car and having a panic attack because, you know, she didn't text me back, which I would have been some years ago in certain dynamics. So it's more about the celebration and acknowledgement and gratitude for the healing and the success internally that's already transpired more so than always just being on the grind of like more shadow work, more shadow work. I got to keep digging. It's like, we're done digging. If something pops up, cool. Let's look at it. It's a great opportunity to go further. But now I'm more interested in 
and again, going back to service and contribution and, and sharing some of the wins and really hopefully inspiring other people that might even be on the path still where they're in the middle of those shadow stuck places that there is another side to this where life becomes incredibly magical. Well, uh, and I want to pause really quick because I think you just hit on something that is very important in that. And I want to talk about your plant medicine journey because I want to get into that because I think people have this misnomer who might just think, oh, that person's just going a trip and hallucinate. <laughs> and that's what it is. And I think it's I much deeper than that. Yeah. But you touched on something that I think is important for a lot of people to hear. And that's that I don't believe the healing journey ever stops. Like, I don't think it's as simple as climbing a mountain, putting a stake and saying, I'm done. But I think what happens, what changes is your response to the situations, right? How you deal with it, how you cope, how you navigate forward, which is, it was just how you know you've healed. Like you alluded to a minute ago, you were saying that before, if somebody wouldn't have responded to you when you were in, in a romantic relationship, you would have pulled over, had a panic attack. Maybe you might have snapped and called them like a thousand times being like, where are you? <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. I mean, totally. I, right? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. But then now you're like, mm, you know, you're able to ride that wave of anxiety. You get home, you're, you're able to be humble enough to open up and share and say, hey, let's listen. Like, this is something that that's, that's really kind of bothered me. I know it shouldn't have. I'm crazy. Like, blah, 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 blah. And you see it kind of worked out. And I think people get so caught up that they're still experiencing those moments like that, like you just shared like a few minutes ago, where they're still feeling the same. I don't know if you want to use the word triggers because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but the same painful moments that they felt their whole life. And they just, they hone in on that. They focus solely on that. And they're like, man, I must not be healing. I must be a piece of crap. I must suck. I'm this, I'm that because we, you experience those moments still. And you know, something I want to say is you're, you're always going to experience moments like that. We're hardwired, right? A lot of the pain, a lot of the trauma, a lot of the experiences that have shaped us today don't necessarily go away. But what, what does go away is the unhealthy coping mechanisms that we used to use in, in response to that, that we have now, you now can hopefully start to replace with, with better ones. And not to say you won't slip up because we all do, but just as long as you're continuing to move the path forward. So I think it's, I just wanted to, to point out that it's important for people that are listening to this to know that you're still going to experience hardship. You're still going to experience times where you're feeling like off or triggered or just depressed or anxious about certain situations. But if you can really grasp the, the understanding of really focusing on how far you've come in response to these situations and where your life's at now compared to where it was five years ago, five months ago, 10 years ago, your ability to remain optimistic during dark times will be, will become so much greater. And with that said, I know one of the things that's really helped you heal, you know, from a lot of your stuff in your past has been plant medicine. And I'm interested to, because I don't, I don't like the show to be an echo chamber. I want to have different opinions. I want to have different experiences shared on here from different views. So I'm interested to know like what that, what actually, like, how did you end up going to this ayahuasca mm. experience being that you were in the 12 step community and I'm sure there was a lot of shame and stigma maybe from that in there. Like what like, prompted you to go? How did you deal with the shame of, you know, trying something different and what did that experience do for you? You know, there was a lot of reconciliation of my very coveted and rightly so identification as a sober person. Right. I'm at that point. I was 22 years sober and, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't, I guess I don't really refer to myself as an alcoholic. Maybe if I say something about it, it might be, 
I might even say I used to be or I'm a recovered alcoholic or something like that. It doesn't really matter. It's just wordplay. But at that point in my life, I had found the need based on some of the things I talked about before to really venture out because like, okay, I haven't had a drink in 22 years. Why can't I have a goddamn relationship where both people aren't crying all the time? You know, like (laughs) this can't be it. right? Right. So I had gone into different groups and all sorts of different modalities of self-discovery and healing. And my knowledge base started to expand. I had my podcast And there were some areas in my life in which I still felt stuck, primarily around the relationship piece. I'm just like, what is wrong here? I'm a good person. I'm an honest man. I'm I'm most of the time caring, loving person. Like, I don't feel like I'm that hard to get along with. Why is this happening? That wasn't like the impetus for me. Maybe I should do ayahuasca. But it's more about my relationship to like, I'm in recovery and this box is what recovery looks like. I felt at that point in my life that my physical and emotional and mental sobriety, and even at that point, financial sobriety, sexual, I was getting there. There's different areas of sobriety in one's life in, in the framework that I subscribe to. Sobriety means soundness of mind, right? If you look it up in the dictionary, it means that you're sane. It doesn't have anything to do really with drinking because you can take away the drink from an alcoholic and you got a freaking pathological nut on your hands yeah. in many cases, which was my case. So it was just about like exploring the boundaries. And, you know, I've been meditating for many years and doing the Kundalini yoga. I mean, very committed to my spiritual practices. And I started to meet people that were in the plant medicine space through my interviews and things like that, that were telling me stories about people that had been addicts and alcoholics and had gotten sober solely from going and doing a ceremony. I was like, wait, so someone's on drugs and they go do a drug and then they don't do drugs anymore. This makes no sense (laughs) from the paradigm I come from because the paradigm I come from and based on my own experiences, Luke, if you smoke weed, that's the first domino and you're toast. And that was literally my experience and hundreds of other people in recovery that I've known personally or heard speak candidly about their relationship to substances. So I'm like, that's weird. And I remember even hearing about one guy who was in recovery and it was kind of a rumor. He went, he went to Brazil and he did ayahuasca and we're like, that fool ain't sober no more. You know, we're like, he calls himself sober still. Yeah. Right. So I was kind of judgmental against anyone that left the reservation there, but it was just this like yearning. It was not even a yearning. It was just like a curiosity. And then I pay attention to the signs. I mean, my life is directed by my intuition and how God speaks to me. Go this way, go that way. Yes, no, maybe. And it was like, huh, there might be something here for you, Luke. So I started to do more research. I started really asking people uh, in more depth about their experience, what they'd observed in people that were sober, having these experiences, etc. Uh, long story short, eventually I got an invite to go to a place called Rhythmia in Costa Rica as kind of like a influencer trip kind of thing where right. immersive journalism, which I've done a lot of, where you just go have an experience and create content around it to build awareness about a brand or someone's teachings or something. And I just agreed to go and, you know, to truncate a lot of stories into, you know, our, our remaining time here, I went to Costa Rica. And I think when I signed up for it, and agreed that I was going to do it. I mean, I'm just the kind of person, if I'm going to do something and make a decision, then I'm doing it, you know? And I had resolved within myself 
what do I call myself after this? Is am I still sober? Like, could I go yeah. to a recovery type meeting? What would that mean? You know? And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm my own man. I'm I've done the work. I'm good. I trust myself. I know myself. I'm pretty good about spotting myself when I'm delusional, when I'm tricking myself into something, rationalize something. I mean, at that point, at 22 years, if I can't tell when I'm full of shit or not, I got big problems, (laughs) (laughs) honestly, because self-honesty is the cornerstone of any way you go about recovery. It's honesty within oneself that results in more authenticity and realness and honesty with others, right? So I knew, nope, this motive, there's something drawing me to this. I'm following it. Call it God's will. I get there and, you know, I'm nervous. Not nervous that I'm going to go back and do drugs, but more nervous about letting go of those constructs and those ideas that I had become so somewhat rigid about. But I was earning the process of loosening my grip on that identity. And maybe I can just be Luke. I don't have to be Luke, a recovering alcoholic. What if I'm just a guy? And I'm having my own unique experience. And so I knew from the second that that second cup of ayahuasca hit me, I was like, bingo, good choice. Amazing. (laughs) I mean, just beyond what I ever thought would be possible. uh, Levels of bliss and connection with God and a level of surrender of my being that I had only dreamt about. And immediately the knowingness that I was so safe that I was so sober that I was going to be even more sober because I was being restored to a greater depth of sanity within my being. And the first two nights I just laid there and experienced the presence of God in the most profound way. And it was so beautiful. It was so tangible, palpable. It was so real. And out of those first couple the big takeaway was that Luke, you are a grown ass man now and you're on your own path. What other people think about you, your sobriety, your story, your standing is none of your business. It's your life. This is your heart, your body, your soul, your mind, your experience, own it, do what you want with it and be willing to accept whatever consequences may come as a result. And I did and am. And as a result of the immensely positive experiences I had the first four times. I went on to do another retreat, maybe a year later at Soltar in Costa Rica with ayahuasca. I've had a number of incredibly profound experiences with 5-MeO DMT from the Bufo Alvarius toad, which you can't even, (laughs) don't even want to touch on that because it's impossible to explain, especially at the end of a podcast. And uh, a few really meaningful experiences with psilocybin. Uh, These are all done in a ceremonial, you know, container. It's not like you're buying this stuff off the street, right? No, 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 no. And as well as some very traditional peyote ceremonies held in a teepee with tribal elders, which really brought me together with my fiance, Allison. We were friends and That's a whole other beautiful story in and of itself. But in three years, there's been a lot of exploration into that realm. And I think the important thing for anyone that's like in recovery to understand, and I wrote a really in-depth article for Mind Body Green about this topic of like psychedelics and plant medicines in sobriety. What does that mean? How does that work? And I'm going to do a lot more content about it. I'm going to touch on it in the book that I'm writing uh, currently. And it's really an individual path, you know, of sobriety at a certain point. 
And even though my experience was I'm 22 years sober, I feel very confident that I'm making the right decision and it was for me. I've also met people that never went to rehab, never went to a program, didn't do anything. They went and sat with an Iboga shaman for two nights and they're sober forever now, you know? So it's really an individual thing. I think I can say just in an effort to be responsible and thoughtful is that the intention of one's exploration is so important to be clear about. The discernment around the people with whom you're going to have these experiences, where, why, who, when, these are huge questions and not questions that should be taken lightly. Yeah. Because some of these experiences are extremely life altering, especially the five MEO. I mean, <laughs> let me just tell you what, after a few of those, which has been six for me, which is probably more than your average person would ever need. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, it's how I roll. There's so much more to our individual and collective experience than, than meets the eye. And there's there are many ways to God's mansion, many windows into it. Some of them are yoga, breathwork, meditation, prayer, religion, all the things. But in my own experience, being very thoughtful and discerning and patient, because I I'm not running out doing this stuff all the time. I've had right. many offers since I lived in Austin and I've declined all of them because I didn't have that feeling inside that says, Luke, you need to go do this right now. I'm curious. I'm kind of excited. Sounds kind of cool. Yeah. That's not a good reason. Right. A good reason is, is there something I want to know about the nature of consciousness? Is there a depth of relationship with God that I feel that I'm not reaching and there's something that could help me remove that block? I need a good, good reason and something very concrete that I want to work on, a really solid intention about which within myself I have a depth of honesty and realness. And that said, I can't imagine my life being in the majestic unfolding it is right now had I not had those experiences over the past three years. Who knows where I would have been, how I would have been. You don't know, right? It's, it's a hypothesis. Yeah. But I know subjectively that I've been able to move through mountains of blocks, most of which were unbeknownst to my consciousness, to my conscious mind, like my yeah. immediate awareness. I'm fine. What? My life's good. Oh, really? Let's look over here, you know? So it's been a huge, huge punctuation mark. There's like, there's sobriety before plant medicines and the intentional use of psychedelics, and there's sobriety after. And my sobriety after, for me, and again, for me personally, my, my response to reality that you were alluding to earlier is so much more vast and so much more within my agency those things that we call triggers, those ways in which we get stuck, the reactions that I would have that I would regret have been minimized so dramatically as a result of those experiences. I'm just living in a completely different world, and it's a world in which I feel more sober than I've ever been in my life. You know, so that's, that's the interesting dichotomy about <laughs> the overlap of classical sobriety and recovery. And in closing, I'll say this, and I put this in the article yeah. I wrote for Mind Body Green, you know, for, for those that 
are very dogmatic about what their definition within recovery of sobriety are. And I understand the dogma because your life is on the line. Yeah. When you're 10 days sober, six months sober, you can't be wishy-washy like, maybe I'll go do peyote, but I won't drink beer. Like, no, 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 no. Like, it needs to be concrete, in my opinion. I agree. Like, you're either sober or you're not. Like, there has to be a line drawn in the sand, and there's a very clear distinction. But if you go back to a bit of the history of the recovery movement, Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, a man whom, I mean, I cite, not that he was a saint, but he was a man that was given a gift by God of codifying a certain set of principles that have changed the landscape of humanity forever in ways that I think most people don't even see because we're still right. immersed in the aftershock, you know, since 1935 when that Alcoholics Anonymous was founded. But something I find so interesting in that, and I've read the books of recovery ad nauseum for years and years. I mean, I'm, I'm basically an AA historian. If you want to like go down that road, honestly, and it's so fascinating to me and those teachings saved my life. I mean, just glory be to God. I'm so grateful for those teachings and the communities that those teachings helped form around me. Yeah. But if you read the book, it's called the big book by some, it's a big blue book. One of the most cited stories within that book is when Bill Wilson had an experience he referred to as a white light experience. He was in Towns Hospital. He'd been hospitalized many times for acute and incurable alcoholism. And they'd send him to these drying out wards, as they called them, and they would detox people of alcohol. His spiritual experience that led to his meeting of another guy named Dr. Bob in Akron, Ohio, was under the influence of a plant medicine called belladonna. Belladonna is a psychoactive plant medicine, and they would use it in these concoctions that were part pharmaceutical, part plant medicine, that they would use to detox people from alcohol, because it's very dangerous to detox dry, just cold turkey. You can die from alcohol withdrawal, much more so than most other drugs. It's a really hard drug to come off. So Bill Wilson is under this sedative plant medicine concoction, the room, according to him, fills with light. He feels the presence of God in the most profound of ways. And he is rendered from that moment until the end of his life sober. The whole premise of the recovery program is partly based on an initial plant medicine experience. So there you go. You know, that's the beauty of paradox and, and open-mindedly, progressively looking at things from all sides. And within that is also, as I said, the um, earned wisdom and principled truth of abstinence as the key, at least for a time, and maybe in my case, abstinence from certain things forever, but that's the seed of the whole thing. So, yeah. you know, for, for those that are rigidly dogmatic about it, I mean, let's be honest and have an honest conversation about the origins of, of the movement. And that's the origins of the movement. And add to that, later in his life, Bill Wilson went on to have quite a few, according to the historical record, clinical LSD journeys in an effort to reproduce his initial plant medicine white light experience so that he could learn how to, at wholesale, for the general public, initiate people into a profound spiritual experience wherein their sobriety would follow as a consequence. And then 
shortly in a few years after his LSD experiments, he died and by all records died according to our definition of still being sober. Wow. He died a sober man after having done quite a bit of LSD. Mm. So let's start there. Or let's end there. <laughs> well, yeah, let's end there. I think that's a great spot for us to end. And, yeah. I, and I want to kind of piggyback just one point. I'm just going to add to that and we'll, we'll wrap up is that you said something again, very important, which was, it's all about like intentionality. And it's not like you were just, you know, a few years ago being like, man, i really just have this itch to go trip or get high or whatever. Oh, and I'm no. just going to go. I was terrified of right. that part. You were like, man, I'm still broken. Why am I still having so many toxic relationships? Why am I still, you know, beating myself up and having this negative self-talk or whatever was going through your mind? Like, like why? And I think you just, you had a deep understanding of yourself and this awareness. And I think you wanted to gain a deeper understanding. And that you felt just based on your knowledge and based on your intuition, like this was the path for you. Might not have been the path for the person next to you or the person behind you, but for, for you, that was your path. And then also the importance of having some sense of baseline when you, you know, get out of that addiction cycle to kind of know, to have some sense that you're making a decision, you know, for the right reason or doing in a logical frame of mind where you kind of know right from wrong and you're like, okay, this is you know, where I'm at, this is the problems that are still arising in my recovery that I'm now forced to deal with because I don't have the drugs or alcohol or whatever I w they were using or to, to mask that. Now let's work on a healing path forward so that our life could get better. And I think that at the end of the day is the important, one of the most important things that you shared in your own journey with it is that you got to that place. You had 22 years, you were doing it for a reason to to tap into more self-discovery for yourself to, to help yourself heal some, some patterns and some things that you just had so many questions still about because just kept coming up, kept coming up despite all the work you've done. So I want to thank you for your openness, your, your honesty, your humility, mm -hmm. this conversation. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I know you have your lifestyle podcast, which I'll be sure to, to plug in the show notes on Instagram. You're at Luke story and then Luke story.com. So anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. That's where that's where I'm found. I, I think the majority of the work that I'm doing in the world is still centered around my podcast, yeah. and the, the video and audio interviews there. I've had an opportunity to interview some incredible people. Uh, you're about to become one of them. Yeah. And that's really been uh, uh, fascinating for me because it's the podcast is so personal for me and it's a vehicle for my own continued evolution. Yeah. And as a byproduct... You know, I've turned that into a brand and doing the other public speaking and online courses and things like that that I do. But it's like my work is work that I would be doing even if no one knew about it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So the fact that other people get to benefit just about my continued curiosity about the human experience and, and ways in which to elevate our consciousness and that other people tap into that and do the same for themselves. It's just like it, does, it literally does not get any better than that. It's so so meaningful to me and i'm so grateful to have conversations like this and share my passion and my experience so thank you 